0: Robert Hansen enjoyed a long career with the FBI. He joined the FBI in 1976 and worked with them until 2001. He became known, he was well respected, but he really became known as an expert on computers. In the mid-1980s, he worked in counterintelligence against the Soviets. He, um, however, Hansen also enjoyed a long career of 22 years working as a spy for the Soviets while also being an FBI agent. And um, he periodically worked as a spy for the Soviets from 1979 until February 18, 2001, when he was caught. He sold thousands of classified documents to the KGB that detailed U.S. strategies in the event of nuclear war, developments in military weapon technologies, and certain aspects of U.S. counterintelligence program. Over time, the FBI realize something has to be going on here. Someone within our bureau has to be giving away some of our information. And so they decided to play offense. And so the U.S. paid the the, um, uh, $7 million to a KGB agent to obtain information on a secret file to figure out who this person was. So they got the file and they listened to the person's voice and uh, they eventually, and, and through fingerprint, they ventured fi- eventually figured out it was Robert Hanson. It was one of their own. And so they put him under surveillance. They soon discovered he was in touch with the Russians again. And they, uh, they began tracking him. Well, one Sunday morning, he went to a park in Virginia, and he put a white piece of tape on a sign. That was his clue. To the Russians, that, hey, I've got fresh information. I'm going to drop it off. And he went and, and dropped it off in, a, in this park under a bridge. He taped a, a garbage bag full of classified documents on, underneath this bridge. And he walked out of the park, and the FBI was there waiting for him. And his first comment to them was, What took you so long? 22 years, this guy, off and on, had been an undercover, uh, a, a double agent, so to speak, an undercover uh, in the FBI for the Russians. Now, handling a spy in the government agency is pretty simple. Once the person's caught, they're prosecuted. He was sentenced to 15 life sentences in prison. However, how are we supposed to handle spies in the church? What about spies in the church? Now, we don't call them spies. We call them false teachers. We don't talk a lot about false teachers, but they do exist out there. There's none here that we know of in teaching position, but we're certainly not above that. And we need to know how to handle that. How are we supposed to react to false teachers? So I don't know if you've ever heard a message on false teachers. I'm sure you maybe you have at some point, but that's what we're going to do tonight. And we're going to look at the book of Jude, the book of Jude. So turn all the way to the very back of your Bible right before Revelation. There's probably just one page there and the book of Jude. It's one chapter, it's 25 verses And Lord willing, we're going to go through the whole book of Jude. We're going to go through the whole book tonight. So all 25 verses, Lord willing. We might speed through some of them, but uh, we're going to cover the message of Jude tonight. And I want to share with you five characteristics of false teachers. How do you identify false teachers? How do you know what to look for? Five characteristics based on the book of Jude. And then I want to give you two ways that Christians, how we should respond How do we respond to these false teachers? How do we be aggressive with them? What what, what do we do? Do we ignore them? Two ways that Christians should respond based on, on God's word here. So the book of Jude, it begins with the author identifying himself, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now we believe this was Jude that was the brother of Jesus. If you go back to Mark chapter six and verse three, it mentions Jude there as a brother of Jesus. Now, it, isn't it interesting that he doesn't say brother of Jesus here? Because he's, he's viewing him as he's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just his servant. I'm just, the, the, the field is level. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no more special than anybody else. I'm just a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And so, um, and brother of James. Now, we don't know when Jude would have been saved. Probably after the resurrection, because we know after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, or that's when James was saved. And so presumably that's when, that's when Jude would have been saved as well. Now we know a, a number of times you'll notice in this book that Jude writes in triads. He writes in groups of three. And the first one of those is found at the, at the latter part of verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in Christ, uh, in, uh, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So called, beloved, and kept. There's the first triad in the book of Jude. And so those who, believers, are called. You probably remember back to when you were saved, and you you could probably say, man, it felt like someone was calling me. I had to respond. Maybe if it was in a worship service or at a crusade or even in the quietness of your home, you just sense, man, God is speaking to me. He is calling me. Paul said in Romans 1, 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In fact, the word... The ecclesia, the word for church, means the called out ones. Clasis means call, and, and ek means from or out of. It means those who are called from or out of the world into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what the church means. And so believers are called. God calls them into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. But believers are also beloved. God has set his love and his affection on his people, on his children. We're beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, this word for "kept" is a key word in the book of Jude because uh, you're talking about false teachers who are trying to lure Christians away from the church. And we know that word as apostasy. You you probably know of some people, unfortunately, who were raised in the church at one time. They were white hot for God, and at some point, they just walked away. And you begin wondering were they ever saved or uh, if they were if they are genuinely saved, they're not living like it now. you see no fruit in their life. and 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 you you begin wondering. G. Campbell Morgan defined apostasy as a willful return to ungodliness. It's a willful, deliberate return to ungodliness. It's, hey, I may be saved, but I'm not going to live like I'm saved. I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But Jude wants people to know, if you are saved, you are kept for Jesus Christ. That word for, some translations say by. I think the best interpretation is for. That means you are kept for him until the day you appear before him. That you are kept until that moment. He will keep you in the palm of his hands, as John 10 talks about. So that so don't just right from the beginning, just know if you're saved, you're always saved. He keeps you. Okay, that, that's key to this whole argument. And then the, the second verse there, may mercy and peace. There's a second triad, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, that'd be a great way to pray for other Christians. God, I pray that your mercy, your peace, and your love will be multiplied to, to that person in my life group, to my neighbor, to my spouse. And then now he, he launches into his argument. Now the, f- the first number of verses, or especially verses 4 through 16, are about the false teachers. So we're, we'll cover those. And then toward the end, uh, he's going to come and address the church. Uh, Beloved, Verse 3 Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, um, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude has a pastor's heart. He's writing out of love for this congregation. He said, I wanted to talk to you about the, the salvation that we have in common. The word there is koinos. There's actually, there's a classical Greek language, if you study Greek, and then there's a koinos Greek, which means common Greek. So he says, I, I'm going to want to write you about our common salvation. The reason it's common is because we all believe the same thing. If you're a Christian, we all believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and we've received him as our Lord and Savior. So th- it's common. You believe the same thing I believe. That's, that's what's common about it. So he says, I'd I love to talk to you about our salvation, but there's a problem. Apparently, these false teachers have made their way into the church. So he said, hey, I found it necessary to address this, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the reason we're doing the whole letter is because later in the book, he's going to tell you, how do you contend for the faith? That's going to come later, verses 20, 21. But right now, he's just telling them, this is what it means. You have to contend for the faith. The word contend means to struggle in behalf of, it means to exert intense effort on behalf of something. Now, it's the, it's the intensive form of the word, ag- 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 whatever, the word that means to strive, aganizomai. Sometimes I can say it, sometimes I can't. But the word here is It's this intensive effort to struggle. So contend, fight, struggle for the faith. That, that's what's going on here. Now, there's different voices in Greek words. There's an active voice, a middle voice, and a passive voice. This is in the middle voice, which calls attention to the subject, which means, like, subject, you have a responsibility to contend for the faith. And his readers are the subject. We would say, well, we're the subject too, because God's word applies to us just as it applies to them. So we have a responsibility to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And again, you may wonder okay, man, that sounds great. What do I do? How do I contend for the faith? We'll, 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 talk about that, but he l- lets them know that up front. Now he says the faith that is the gospel that was handed down to them. And so, um, you know, as Christians, we're really the middleman. Our job is we receive Christ and then we take it, but we don't keep it to ourselves. And so we turn and we hand it to someone else. We pass it along. Okay. So it's, it's not our job to try to make the gospel more attractive, that's where theological liberalism really came in in the night, night, really nineteenth twentieth century. I thought, well, Christianity—we've got to do something to make it more attractive. We got to make it more appealing, and 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 that's not our job. Like one of my mentors said, "Keep the gospel in its rags, keep it in its rags. Just just share because the power of God is in the gospel. So we share the gospel; He does the work of saving. We don't have to feel the pressure of trying to make it more attractive. So just just Enjoy the freedom that comes in the gospel. All we have to do is share the gospel. Then God is the one who does the work. And so uh, verse four begins talking about these false teachers. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first characteristics of false teachers they appear unassuming. They appear unassuming. They, they crept in unnoticed. You know I mean, they don't wear loud clothes. They don't walk in and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. Hey, it's so nice to meet you. I'm a false teacher. What's your name? They, they don't do that. They, crept, they creep in unnoticed because they want to blend in. They want to appear normal. And then once you trust them, they want to say, hey, um, do you really think this is what that says? Let me, let me tell you what that really means. Then that's when they begin to try to bring you over to their side. So they, they, they appear unassuming. They want to remain under the radar. They hide their true character and motives, as one source says. They, they pretend to be part of the church. And apparently, they, they were disrupting the congregation here. So Jude writes to them. He says, long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Let me show you what that means. In John 3.18, I'll read it to you real quick, right after, shortly after John 3.16 it says, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he does not believe, or he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So when, we don't, when an unbeliever refuses to repent and place their faith in Christ, they're already condemned. Now, that can change if they will repent and place their faith in Christ. They have condemned themselves. Does that make sense? They have chosen to reject Jesus. And because of that, they are condemned. And so he's saying these people have not repented of their sins. So because of that, they are condemned. So they, they've, not re- they've refused to repent. Now, the rest of what he says about them has to do with their morality. He says they're, they're ungodly people. They're, they're not honoring God with their lifestyle. They pervert the grace of God of our God into sensuality. So he's talking about sexual immorality and they, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying with their behavior, they're living in rebellion, in rebellion against God saying, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not, I'm not following him. He, God wants me to be holy. I'm not going to be holy. I'm, I'm, I'm living in rebellion to him. I'm as I'm living as if there's not a God. That's, that's, that's what false teachers do. Now, Verses 5 through 7 show us the second characteristic of false teachers. So first, they appear unassuming. Second, false teachers are uninterested in adhering to the boundaries God set in place. They are uninterested in adhering to the boundaries God set in place. Christianity is like a, a good road that you drive on. It has boundaries. You can believe, you have to believe certain things within these boundaries. You go outside those boundaries, you're outside of the walls of Christianity. And so you have to believe correctly about God and his son, Jesus. And so false teachers don't believe within those boundaries, Uh, but they're not just content to sit in the church. They want to pull you outside of those boundaries as well. And so Jude introduced another triad here in verses five through seven. And each one of these is a corporate group of people who did not adhere to the boundary God gave them. This is so interesting. Every, per, every group here rebelled against God, and as a result, they suffered the consequences. So let's, let's, let's go through and look at these. All three examples are illustrations of people who left their proper place or boundary against God's will. Okay? So he says, now I want to remind you, although, once you, although, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? You know, Jesus didn't just come on the scene in Luke chapter 1 or Matthew 1. Jesus has always been alive. He's always been, was either with the Father, then he became flesh, and now he's back with the Father. But he said, Jesus brought them out of Egypt. Jesus brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Now, he's referring to um, the book of Numbers. Remember when the, the 12 spies went in and then 10... Uh, did not believe. They grumbled. And then, but two, Joshua and Caleb did believe. Well, that whole generation, most of them refused to believe against God. They stepped outside the boundary of belief and went to unbelief. And because of that, God's, it says, Jesus destroyed them. That is he led them, let them wander for 40 years and they wasted the rest of their life. That's what he's talking about. They stepped outside the boundary of belief. They, They had unbelief in their hearts. And Jesus destroyed them. That, that's what he's talking about. Then he said, verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, what is he talking about? I think he's talking about Genesis chapter six, where it says the sons of refers to the sons of God. He's talking about angels. Now, not everybody believes this. Okay. But this is this is the best I can I can understand. This is what this is saying. The angels abandoned their home in heaven in order to take to become human. They became males, they took wives for themselves, and they had they had sexual relations with these women. Okay? I know this sounds bizarre, but I'm just telling-just read Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And because of that, that was rebellion against God, because they stepped outside of their boundary where they were supposed to be as angels in heaven. They stepped outside of that boundary, and because of that, God has punished them with eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you have the unbelieving Israelites, you have these uh, immoral angels, both of them have rebelled against God. And the third, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, pursued Unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now he's talking about the homosexuality that existed in, this is Genesis 19, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroyed that city. Now this is interesting. Ezekiel 16 also says that Sodom and Gomorrah were punished for their pride and lack of concern for the poor. It's interesting. But uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities serve as an example for all who choose to rebel against God. So Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah were all corporate examples of people groups who broke the boundaries God had for them. They stepped outside of those boundaries, and God punished them. So he's saying these false teachers, hey, they don't mind. They just step right outside the boundaries of Christianity. They stay over here in unbelief, and because of that... God's going to punish them just as he punished these other ones. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so now in verses 8 through 11, there's so much going on here in this book, so many illustrations that we have to explain. In verses 8 through 11, now uh, Jude is going to give us individual examples of people who rebelled against God. He gave us corporate examples in 5 through 7. Now it's individual examples. Uh, So here's the third characteristic of false teachers. They are unashamed to promote themselves. They are unashamed to promote themselves. False teachers see themselves as the authority and they do not submit to someone else's authority. And so um, before we get to the individual examples, he gives us characteristics in general of these false teachers. Yet in like manner, those people also relying on their own dreams. So to them, the word of God is not their authority. It's well, man, I, I, I dream and God spoke to me in a dream last night. He said that I could do this. And because of that, they were justifying their immorality saying, well, yeah, but God told me I could do that. So in other words, my dream is now my authority rather than the word of God. And so that's, they, they, that's what they did. They defiled the flesh, which is, refers to sexual immorality. They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I admit, there seems like there's some bizarre stuff going on in Jude. Okay, but this is talking about angels, because the word uh, glorious ones really means glories. They blasphemed glories. Glories refers to angels. Now, you say, well, why is that, why is that a big deal to blaspheme angels? What, you know, what's the big, big deal with that? Well, look at the next verse. But when the arch, archangel, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, this, we're getting more bizarre, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So even Michael, the archangel, who's also called the great prince in Daniel 12, verse 1, even the archangel archangel did not think himself so highly that he's going to pronounce judgment on another angel, a fallen angel, which is Satan. Instead of that, he, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, you with me? So he said, no, God's the authority. He, even the, the archangel Michael said, I'm not the authority. I'm, I'm, who am I to pronounce judgment? God's going to judge you, okay? But these false teachers don't have that type of humility. They think they're the authority. They don't, they don't mind speaking out blasphemous words against angels. Now, are you with me? I know this is a little bizarre. Are you with me? Okay, now, now this whole body of Moses thing. Okay, um, what he's talking about... Um, he's talking about, um, the basis of the story refers to, uh, when Michael came to bury, remember in Deuteronomy 34, Moses died. It said, and no one to this day knows where he's buried. Remember that? Okay. Well, the story goes that Michael, the archangel went to bury his body and Satan said, no, his body belongs to me because he was a murderer. And instead of instead of Michael going, Well, look, who are you talking to? You know, he says, the Lord rebuke you. So he called on God's authority. And when that happened, supposedly, Satan backed away because God has ultimate authority. Okay? So that that that's what that's what he's talking about. Um, but these people blaspheme, verse 10, all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. Judgment is coming upon them. Verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain. So now, now he begins our individual examples. So he did the corporate ones earlier, now the individual ones. So what is he talking about? What is the way of Cain? Well, remember Cain killed his brother Abel. Um, you remember Cain was, was Adam and Eve's first son. Uh, they had a, a disagreement. There was jealousy in Cain's heart, and so he killed his brother Abel. So God, but remember, before that, God spoke to him and asked why he was angry. Remember that, and He said, "Sin is crouching at the door. Its desires for you, but you must master it." So He gave him. Uh, he He told him what was going on. gave him a way out, and so the way. Of, but God, uh, Cain still disobeyed and killed Abel. So the way of Cain refers to clearly knowing God's standards and willingly disobeying them. So false teachers are those who know or are aware of God's standards. And they say, you know what? That's not for me. I'm going to disobey anyway. I'm going to willingly, in rebellion, I'm going to to disobey. Remember in our, our life group study this past week in Daniel 9, where Daniel's confessing sin? There were three words that were used for sin. It said, They had sinned against God, they had rebelled, and they had transgressed. That's how offensive our sin is against God. It takes three words to describe it. The the utter rebellion and depravity in our hearts. And um, you you see the false teachers just exude that type of rebellion. Like, I know what God wants me to do, and I will not do it. Just flat-out rebellion. Now, there's also... Uh, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So now we got to look up, well, what, what's he talking about? What's, what's the error of Balaam? Well, this goes back to Numbers 22 through 24. Balaam had a problem with greed. Uh, in Numbers 22 through 24, he was hired as a prophet for Balak, king of Moab. Now, at first, Balaam appears to obey God, but you, we learn later in Numbers 31:16 that Moses mentioned women who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. So Balak offered Balaam large amounts of money, apparently, at some point, And Balaam must have taken that. He rebelled against God and he led other people to do the same, even though he knew what was right. So now Balaam is an, an example of greed and rebellion against God. So these false teachers were greedy for power and they rebelled against God as well. So you had the way of Cain, the way of Balaam, and then you had Korah's rebellion. So, um, you know, you can't just blow through the book of Jude. You've got to look all this stuff up. So Korah's rebellion. Remember what happened in Korah's rebellion? That's Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16. It says... um, um, Verse three, I'll just read to you real quick. They, this is a number of people led by Korah. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said to them, "You have gone too far. For in all the congregation are, uh, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord?" So they're fussing at Moses and Aaron, saying, "Who do you think you are? Why, why do you think you can lead God's people? We're all set apart. We're all equal." Why, why, why are you better than everybody else? And Moses comes back and says to Korah, Here now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation? God has separated them to serve the whole congregation. He says, is that not enough for you? You want the priesthood now too? Are you not satisfied with what you have? Are you so discontent that now you want this too? And, and, and they rebelled. And you remember, God opened up the ground and about 250 people just went down, just like that, alive into the ground. It was, a, it, was, it was rebellion. It was dissatisfaction. It was, I've got this greed in my heart. I want more. I'm not satisfied with, the, with, with serving. Now I want the priesthood as well. And, and so the difference is, uh, in the book of Numbers, God judged those people on the spot. And Jude, he's saying that, that judgment's coming in the future. Okay. And so um, now... Verses 12 and 13 give us more characteristics. Now, we're getting to the good part, okay? Just, just hang with me. It does turn here, but this is, this is the way the text goes. So, verses 12 and 13 provide the fourth characteristic of false teachers. They are uncaring about people. They, they don't care about people. They're uncaring about people. Look, look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. Hidden reefs is talking about these rocks that exist under the water, that, that you, you can't see from above the water. But when you get close to the dock, those rocks just like scrape the bottom of a boat and they do damage. They're they're, they're hidden reefs. That uh, they're they're concealed and they, they do damage to the to a ship. And he's saying they gather at these love feasts. Now we think these would have existed probably once a week. Believers would come together, they would fellowship, they would eat. They would probably take the Lord's Supper. They would spend time encouraging one another. And these false teachers who crept in unnoticed, they didn't show up at a love feast and go, I'm a, I'm a false teacher. I'm here to, I'm here to you know, hurt you. I'm here to lead you astray. They would show up and they would, they would just blend in with everybody else. And as they, it says, as they feast with you without fear, they weren't, they're not afraid of anything because they reject authority. So they're, they're not afraid of getting caught. They don't care about you. It says shepherds feeding themselves. Now, wh- why does that sound strange? Well, a job of a shepherd is to feed his sheep. Shepherds make sure their sheep are fed, but they don't care about the sheep. All they care about is feeding themselves. In Ezekiel 34.2, the Lord was upset with the shepherds of Israel who had been feeding themselves. They did not care spiritually about God's people. And so the image of a shepherd here suggests the false teachers were claiming they had the ability to lead God's people. They had the ability to teach. They had the ability to care for people, but they didn't care for people. They cared about their own comfort and their own position, and they were selfish. And he says they're, they're like waterless clouds. Now, waterless clouds... If, if you're in the ancient near east you welcome clouds because you won't rain. But a cloud without rain is really useless. I think well that's that's not going to do us any good. We we, we need rain. We, we that but so they're useless spiritually. They, they they look good, they look the part, maybe they carry their bible and you know maybe they quote some verses but but they're they're not going to you're not going to profit spiritually underneath their teaching. It says they, they're swept along by winds. They're fruitless trees in late autumn. Now, if you went to an apple tree in the autumn, you would expect to see an apple, right? Well, if you if you go to a fruit tree and it's in prime season and doesn't have fruit, then it's it's useless. The only thing it's good for is firewood. So they're they they're useless. They they don't have spiritual fruit. They're twice dead, it says. That means that refers, you know, the book of Revelation talks about the second death. At, talking about at the judgment, these people have already, they've already been condemned. They're, they're spiritually dead. They're uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea. This refers to waves that come up on the land. They leave a residue behind. So these false teachers leave a sticky residue of shame behind them because of their evil deeds. For just as you can see, the waves come up on the land. Their evil deeds were clear for everybody to see. Um, just graphic imagery here. Wild waves of the sea, uh, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And then the fifth characteristic of false teachers found in verses 14 through 16, they are unable to escape God's judgment. They're unable to escape God's judgment. Remember Enoch, who may have said in uh, Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Wouldn't you like for that to happen? Walked with God, and then boom, God took you up into heaven. Enoch is the seventh in order from Adam, if you count, if you count Adam. And uh, then he was taken up into heaven. Jews point in this ver- verse, especially in verse 15. If you look, the term all is used four times in, verses, in verse 15. All, 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 all. Judgment is universal and inescapable. So these false teachers may have been teaching that Jesus is going to return. Hey, he's not going to judge me. You know, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. Uh, but, but their deeds would be punished. They would be judged. And um, they were complainers. They were not filled with joy. They were quick to find fault with other people. They pursued their own sinful desires. Now, we get to the good part now. We made it through all of that. So do you understand a little bit more about false teachers now? Five characteristics of false teachers. So you're going to be on the lookout Sunday. You're going to come in here and go... That person looks unassuming. That person, no, nah, no. Nah. But we need to know. We need to know what to look for. And so, uh, now, verse seventeen. But you, but you, you there is, is 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 emphasized. But but you. It's the first word in the sentence. So it's like he's been writing right here, and now he's grabbing him by the shoulders. And said, but you. You know, pay, now pay attention. You're you're not one of those false teachers. You're different. You're saved. Remember, remember is a command. Remember beloved, he didn't use the word beloved when he was talking about false teachers because they're under God's judgment. Now he's talking to the, the church, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember um, what Jesus told the apostles in Matthew 10, 16, he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so apparently some of the apostles had made it around to this congregation that Jude is writing to. We don't know exactly which congregation, it could have been multiple ones. But apparently the apostles came and told them, hey, there are false teachers out there. You need to be aware. They, you're not going to recognize them, but you just need to be aware of they, they exist. He says, remember that. So don't, don't be surprised. This is not some new thing. You were warned about this. Uh, because they said, verse, verse 18, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause Divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirits. They don't have the Holy Spirit, so they're not believers. But you, again, you is is emphasized, first word in the sentence. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, Jude is going to give the believers here, I think, two different things here to do. So we've talked about five characteristics of false teachers, now he says, all right, believer, here's two things I want you to do. Two things as, as the church that, that you need to do. So you don't spend all your time, church, on trying to resist these false teachers. And, um, you know, you could be led astray by them. Um, you need to play offense. And here's, here's two things that you need to do. The first thing is this. Be proactive in our walk with God. Be proactive in our walk with God. Remember we said earlier, what does it mean to contend for the faith? The first thing is be proactive in your walk with God. Now, he gives them, a, gives them a command here. There's one command in verses 20 through 21, and then there's three uh, participles that modify that command. So there's one command, and then he gives them three ways to do it. Does that make sense? I love the Word of God. It's so simple. He doesn't, he doesn't say do this and he, without telling them how to do it. He tells them what to do, then he tells them how to do it. So here's what they're supposed to do. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The word keep is the main command there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, if you just stop there, you would go, man, that sounds great. I, how do I keep myself in the love of God? That's what we're supposed to do. Now, the way you do that are three participles that also function as commands. Build yourselves up, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait. Those are the three things you do. So let's, let's just talk through these. So, remember, remember earlier he said, in the, back to, all the way back to verse 1, he says, you are kept for Jesus Christ. But now he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You see, it's both in. Jesus does keep us, but we have a responsibility to grow ourselves spiritually, to keep ourselves in the love of God. Remember John 15? As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That is, remain in my love. And so abide means to remain. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. While God's love toward his people is fixed and permanent, it is possible to position ourselves outside of God's love through disobedience and thus experience his discipline and anger. So he says, keep keep yourselves right in the middle of God's love. Stay right there in that position. And how, how, how do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is to build yourself up in your most holy faith. So build yourselves up in the most holy faith. So the foundation is one's faith in Jesus Christ. So we've got to build ourselves up on the faith. This means to grow in our understanding of the gospel, the teachings that were given to us at our conversion. So we must make every effort to study the word of God, to listen to messages, to read good books, participate in life group, Bible study, be under the teaching of the word of God. As we do this, we put ourselves in position right into the love of God, for God to speak to our hearts and to grow us. So we build ourselves up by just putting effort to grow spiritually. Not, not to save ourselves, because you're already saved, but to grow. Okay, then the second thing you do is to pray in the Holy Spirit. Prayer reveals our dependence upon God, and it deepens our intimacy with God. Now remember the Holy Spirit is our helper, and as Romans 8, Romans 8 teaches us, he prays he intercedes in our behalf sometimes when we don't even know how to pray. Sometimes our praying is just going to God and saying, God, I just need you. I don't even really know how to pray right now. God, I just need you. i just worship you. And the Holy Spirit will pray. So we we build ourselves up and we pray in the Holy Spirit. And then the third and final way that we keep ourselves in the love of God is to wait for Jesus to return. This is talking about the second return of Christ. We're to wait for him. We have eternal life now as believers but we will experience that fully when Jesus returns and we're transformed into his image. Titus 2.13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This waiting expectantly. I mean, I can just can't wait. I can't wait for him to return. And we eagerly await. And as we do that, we remain in the love of God. This one, one source said this, Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find that their love for God is slowly evaporating, and it will be evident that their real love is for the present evil age. It's a powerful quote. We take our eyes off Christ, we're just revealing how much we really love the world. He's saying keep your eyes focused on Christ. Just any time now, Jesus is going to be back. Remember at the end of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. This, This sense of Jesus, come on. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Come come right now. This, like a, you know, this is great. The world's great. But I want Jesus. Give me Jesus, as we sing earlier. That, that, that's what I really want. Uh, a little while back, uh, Tim Tebow spoke at uh, the Passion 2018, Passion Conference 2018. And he's talking, Louis Giglio was, was interviewing him. And um, you can watch this online. This is a fascinating story. So Louis had heard Tim tell this story, and uh, so he had Tim tell it to the thousands of people that were there. Tim said there was a particular athlete when he was at the University of Florida that was one of the most gifted and best athletes he had ever seen. That's Tim Tebow saying that. One of the most gifted, best athletes that Tim had ever seen. Now, this guy was also a super strong Christian. So Tim thought, man, this is great. This guy's a great athlete. He's a strong Christian. Man, this is, this is outstanding. But Tim noticed them. He said, as the team began to, to train, he noticed that the strength coach would say, hey, guys, I want you to do 10 reps on pull-ups. And, and this guy would do seven. And then, and then the, the coach, strength coach would say, hey, when we run across the field, we're going to sprint. and then But this guy would, would just jog. And um, he, he would tell him, you know, run run as hard as you can. And he would just, you know, he'd be going halfway. He'd be jogging. And Tim would try to encourage them, like, come on, man, come on, come on, just pick it up, let's work hard, I, I need you. And, and he, just, he just wouldn't pick it up. Well, finally, one day, they were, they were, they were running the, the stadium steps at, at, the, at their Florida stadium. And uh, they started on one side, and they had to touch every step in the stadium. No idea how long that would take, but I, that was, that's what they had to do. And so Tim said he would start last, because he wanted to finish first. He said, you know, if I finish first, people expect me to finish first. But he said, I would start last. And, you know, he passed people. That way he has no, no excuse for, uh, I mean, no one would expect him to finish first. So he's, he's, Tim starts last. And they start going. He's passing people. And he comes up on this guy who's this super strong Christian who's a, a good athlete. And, and he's just doing his typical halfway thing. And Tim, like, kind of looks back at him and said, come on, man, I need you come on. And the guy, the guy goes, no, no, no. Uh, God told me to stay back here with him. And he said, he's running with guys. This is, this was Tim's words who were fat and slow. And he said, you know, and the guy's going, no, no, no. God told me to stay with them. And he said, Tim just said, he looked at him with such a look of disappointment, but he kept going. Tim finished. and He said about 30 minutes later, you know, everybody else finished. And he said, the team was at midfield and he called this guy over. And he just, you know, he never said his name, but he just said, hey, man, I want you to know I love you and I care about you. But there is nobody else on this team I'm more disappointed in than you. He said, every Wednesday night, you're at Campus Crusade. Every Thursday night, you're at FCA or or vice versa. When there's there's a praise and worship night, you are on the front row. He said, but when there's someone who quits on the team, you're the first one. He said, you're one of the strongest Christians on the team but you're also one of the softest Christians on the team. He said, I have players and coaches coming to me saying, uh, is that what a, a Christian is or do they train and work like you? He saying, you're causing confusion and you're making me look like, look like a joke because you're not obeying what the coaches tell you to do. He said, either you will change or you will not play. He said, I'm the quarterback. I'm the leader of the team. Either you will change or you will not play on my field. And he said the guy never played. The guy refused to change. He was content to go halfway, to look good on the front row, to go to all the stuff and be seen in public. But when it came time to do the hard work, he wasn't going to do it. And I wonder how many of us as Christians are just content to look good here. but We're not going to do the hard work of growing. We're not going to do the hard work of building ourselves up praying on the Holy Spirit, and waiting for Jesus to return. It's easy. It's easy to just, man, I'm just going to go halfway. I'm going to look good. I'm not going to commit myself. So I'm, going to be, I'm going to be a lazy, soft Christian. I'm going to confuse the unbelievers around me because they're going to go, is that what a Christian is? Because, I mean, he yells at his kids just like I do. Or he, you know, has, is just as materialistic as I am. Is that what a Christian is? What unbelievers want to know is this. Is what you have real and does it make a difference in your life? Is what you have real? Is this, is this really real for you? Is this really changing your life? Is this changing your marriage? Or if not, then I, I don't need it. I mean, you know, my life's working fine. He tells them to do one more thing. He says, be uh, Be merciful. To those who are struggling, be merciful to those who are struggling. There's some believers in the church who were being uh, initially being led astray by these false teachers. He says in verse uh, 22, he says, "And have mercy on those who doubt." There's three. Here's another triad. There's three different groups of people who were being led astray. The first are those who are doubting. These are probably people that have been under the you know they've talked to a false teacher a time or two and they're going, "Oh wait a minute." Is that, is that really what that verse meant? I, I mean, I've been taught it meant this, but I'm not sure now. So they're starting to doubt. He says, man, have mercy on those people. Don't, don't ignore them. Don't, don't point fingers at them. Don't make fun of them. He said, have, have mercy on them. Hey, go to them and put your arm around and say, man, man, we've missed you. Man, would you come back to our life group? We would love to see you this week. And, and man, I know, I know you've been hanging out with these people, but just come on back. Man, we, we love you. Have mercy, have mercy on them. Second, the second group requires a little more aggressive approach. Save, others, save others by snatching them out of the fire, man. This this group they have been influenced now. They've they've been influenced by these false teachers, and 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 I'm, I'm interpreting this as they're not saved yet. You know that right now they're heading toward eternal judgment. But he's saying, snatch them out of the fire. Share the gospel with them. Hopefully they'll repent and and they'll believe before. Before they're, um, they, they die and they're, they're, they go to, to, to judgment in hell, snatch them out, be aggressive, go after them man, call them, S- stay on them don't just, don't just well we haven 't seen them in a while you've got to go after them to others, show mercy with fear. This is the third group show mercy with fear now there's three different, three different uh, things this, that fear could mean it could mean um, uh, it could mean referring to the fear of God. It could refer to, uh, I'm fearful of being contaminated by their sin. Or it could be, I'm fearful of how many people they've led astray. Um, I, I think it means being contaminated by their sin. In other words, I don't want to get so close that, man, I, you know, I, I've, got a, I've, got, I've got a healthy reverence here. Because I could be led astray as well. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not above making mistakes. So, so ha, ha, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He's talking about sin. It just has this staining effect on our lives. But we want to hate it. We want to hate sin. We want to love people, but we want to hate sin. So he says, man, you got to go after these people. You can't just let them keep going astray. You got to be aggressive. You got to go after them. Show mercy. Just engage with them. Go, go, go get them. Then he ends with this doxology that you're probably familiar with. He says, now to him... That is the father now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So just in case, you know, these, this, his, his church, just reading, this is like, well, good night. This is, this is pretty scary. He said, no, no, wait a minute. God is able to keep you from stumbling. Yes. You have a responsibility to grow. Yes. You need to keep yourselves in the love of God, but God is going to keep you. God is going to keep you from stumbling. And he's going to present you blameless, not sinless because we're all sinners, but he's going to present you blameless because of Christ, because the, before the presence of his glory with great joy. Man, there'll be great joy on that day. Remember Psalm 16 and the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. We'll, we'll, we'll have this great joy when we appear before him because of what Christ has done. He says, to the only God, our Savior, talking about the Father, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time—that is, before we even existed—and now during the church age and forever in eternity future, be all of this: glory, majesty, dominion, authority. All of that be to God through Christ, forever and ever and ever. It's just a—it's worship. We're so saying, church, don't fear. Have a healthy reverence for what's going on. Be mindful of false teachers. Be aware of them. But keep yourselves in the love of God. But know that God will keep you ultimately. So I want to read these verse, those two verses over you again. And then I want to pray for you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?